I've been reading a book recently called Evangelism in a Blues Bar. It's by a guy named Alan Dayhoff. And in this book, he starts off by telling the story, a little bit of his, his family story. He says his grandfather, Murray, uh, his grandfather, Murray's mother's name was Annie. And Annie was married to a sea captain. And this sea captain was prone to come home from sea and just kind of burst into these drunken rages. And, and one night in this rage, he took a lantern and threw it across the room and wound up burning the whole house down. So that was kind of the world that Murray grew up in. Uh, by 19, in 1955, DeHoff writes, Murray Gillespie jumped from a smoke-blackened bridge into the path of an oncoming train. Alcoholism, adultery, unemployment, separation from his children, and the wounds of his childhood had pressed down on his soul. No pastor, no apologetic was there to reason with him and shift his decision. I suppose his last thoughts might have been, just get this endless suffering cycle over with. Murray had two children. Uh, one of them was Al DeHoff's mother. Her name was Hope. And Hope basically got shuffled back and forth between her mother's house, who was known just to, to, to yell through the night at times, through her mother's, from her mother's house to her grandmother's house. And her mother, grandmother was always bouncing around the city. So she was just kind of back and forth all of her childhood. Uh, at 13, she got pregnant, and the, the father's father offered her $500 to go get an abortion. She said, no, I'm not going to do that. She had the child, but she was actually in a coma for nine days after giving birth and was too weak to even see the child for three months. At 15, she lied about her age. She moved out of the house. She got a job. She got an apartment. She got, out, she got off on her own. Uh, she was living in this apartment complex, and there was a much older man living across the hall from her. He was very obviously interested in her and she wanted nothing to do with him eventually to get away from him she moved and left him a note and said please don't follow me well he spent three months tracked her down uh, eventually convinced her to marry him uh, at the ceremony the, the the wedding license had his age listed as 36 and divorced and hers listed as 16 and she said she she said no i'm actually 15 but she she signed the wedding license they began to go through the ceremony and she got so nervous that she had an anxiety attack and the groom actually had to say her vows for her uh, alan de hoff writes that his mother's marriage was characterized by fighting adultery and addictions uh, in, in much ways she was repeating the same cycle that she had seen in her parents and grandparents before her and he, he tells this story to say he feels like this story is a lot like the stories that he hears from the unchurched who populate the blues bar that he likes to hang out in. That there are these stories of heartache and suffering. And he says, when you've got that kind of suffering in your life, that creates a lot of scar tissue in your life. And that creates a, kind of this hardness toward God. That he would hear people say things like, forget your God. Forget the church. Forget Christianity. Where was your God when my child disappeared, when they came and took my child from me? Where, where was your God then? So there's this hardness towards God that can build up in the midst of this atmosphere of suffering. And what I want to ask this morning is in that atmosphere of suffering, does God have anything to say? Does God have anything to say that might make a difference? Does God have anything to say that might soften our hearts? And I think this is an important question to ask, 
not just for those of us who are perhaps outside of the church. I think it's an important question to ask for people inside the church as well because the frustrations of life and the sufferings that we all deal with every day and the hypocrisy and sin that we can see even inside of the church can all begin to play into us and begin to harden us and we can find ourselves slowly drifting away from this faith that we profess until we find ourselves waking up one morning saying, I don't know if I'm buying this Jesus stuff anymore. I mean, I, I, I just don't know about this anymore. I'm going to go and try to find something else to try to build my life on. That's the temptation that the first readers of the book of Hebrews were dealing with. Uh, they were starting to question whether following Jesus was really worth it. And they were contemplating, these were Jewish converts to Christianity, they were contemplating going back to Judaism. And the argument that the writer of Hebrews makes is that to leave Jesus and to go back to that story, to go back to the animal sacrifices, to go back to all the Old Testament purity laws, is to actually miss the point of that story. To go back to that Old Testament story and leave Jesus is actually to miss the point of what the Old Testament was all about in the first place because the intention of the Old Testament was to point you to Jesus and to prepare the way for Jesus. In other words, Jesus is the Savior that the Old Testament was looking for. And so he's saying to his readers, Jesus is therefore the Savior that you need. Now I'm guessing nobody in here this morning is wrestling with the temptation to go back to the Old Testament. Like, I, I want to go back and do all of that Old Testament ceremonies again. But I imagine there are people who are wrestling with some of the other stories that are out there. Stories that in the midst of our difficulties can seem more attractive than this Jesus way. They can seem more attractive to Christianity than Christianity does. And what Hebrews says to us this morning is, there's not a better story. It may look like there are better stories. There's not a better story out there because there's not a better Savior. So that's where we're going. So we're going to be looking at it over the course of our study of this book. But let's read two passages this morning. And we're going to be spending the bulk of our time in this first one from Hebrews chapter 1. This is God's Word. And this is in your bulletin if you want to follow along with me as I read it. Long ago... And many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. In chapter 2, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. 
pray with me. Uh, Father, this is your word, and it's timeless, and it's true. Uh, you have spoken, and I pray that you would even be pleased to speak to us now through the preaching of your word, uh, and help us to see that, that the Jesus story is the better story. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So let me go back to my original question. In this broken world, does a God who can seem very silent and very absent, does he actually have anything to say? And I want to respond to that in three ways. Number one, in Jesus, God makes himself known. Number two, in Jesus, God makes himself known as the king. And then number three, in Jesus... God makes himself known as the king who has come to save us. So first of all, in Jesus, God makes himself known. Uh, if you've ever heard of the astronomer Carl Sagan, he's been dead many years, but, but if you don't know anything else about him, you've probably heard this quote, the cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. In other words, this material universe is all that there is. There's nothing more than that. Uh, Granted, this statement, many people felt or thought that Carl Sagan was an atheist, and somebody asked him this one time, and he said, I'm not an atheist. An atheist is someone who has compelling evidence that there is no Judeo-Christian Islamic God. I am not that wise, but neither do I consider there to be anything approaching adequate evidence for such a God. And so what he's saying is, look, I'm not willing to say absolutely that there is no God, but I don't feel like there's enough evidence to justify me actually believing in God. If there is a God, he's awfully quiet and he's not making much noise. And I don't see any reason to, to actually believe in him. The claims of Christianity to steal from the title of a book by Francis Schaeffer is he is there and he is not silent. That God is actually speaking. He has spoken and he has made himself known. He said, well, how has God done that? Well, one of the ways God does this is through the creation itself. Psalm 19 says, the heavens themselves declare the glory of God. That the creation itself testifies to God's existence. Creation is, in a sense, God's speech. But our text tells us in verse 1 that, that God has actually made himself known through speech, through words, such as words you and I would use. Verse 1 Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God spoke. God said something. And what our writer is saying is that, look, guys, in the past, God spoke through prophets. He used intermediaries to deliver his word to us. He spoke through guys like Moses and Isaiah and Elijah and Hosea. They brought God's words to us, and those were actually God's very words and we now have those words of God recorded in what we know as the Old Testament and so the writer of Hebrews says this is how God has spoken in the past but then he says now in these last days he has spoken by his son in the past he's spoken through the prophets in many ways in these last days now he has spoken to us by his son and his son is not just some kind of mini-God, like some small version of God. He is actually God in the flesh, we're told here. He is the one who has been appointed heir of all things. He is the one through whom God created the world. 
He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. You think of a coin with the imprint of a ruler's face on it, and that's the idea. Jesus is the exact imprint of the very nature and character of God. Jesus has come in human flesh and has made the invisible God visible. Uh, he, he tells his disciples in, in the book of John, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And so Jesus has made the invisible visible. Uh, he, in Jesus, God has spoken. And so you have this God speaking in the Old Testament. And all this revelation is preparing us for God to speak in Jesus Christ. For God to take on human flesh and to make himself known. And then chapter 2 of Hebrew tells us that as Jesus came, he brought this message of salvation. Look in, in chapter 2. Verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. And so Jesus declares this message of salvation, and then we read, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders. And so Jesus comes, brings, and accomplishes, brings the message of salvation, and actually accomplishes salvation, and then the apostles testify to this work of what Jesus has done and, the, and God bears witness through signs and wonders that accompany their teaching. And the point in all this is that God has spoken. God has spoken. Old Testament driving to Jesus and God's revelation in Christ. New Testament looking back and saying, look, the, vis- the invisible has been made visible. God has spoken. He is there. He is not silent. He has made himself known. He has, he has told us and shown us what we need to hear. Now, those of you who are married know that, that getting married is, is a life-changing event, right? There's before marriage, and then there's after marriage. Those of you who have children know that it is a life-changing event. There is before children, and then there is after children. And things are never the same after this life-altering event. God speaking in Jesus Christ is is a world-altering event. Everything is changed because the invisible has been made visible in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, In his book, book, Eat This Book by Eugene Peterson, uh, he says, Imagine a group of men and women who are living in a warehouse. And they've spent their entire lives living in a huge warehouse. They were born in the warehouse, they grew up in the warehouse, and they have everything they need in the warehouse. There are no doors, but there are windows, but these windows have gotten so dusty that you can't see out of them, and nobody ever bothers to clean them, and nobody ever looks outside the window. And then one day some kids go over and they start kind of messing with the windows, and they rub it off, and they look out the window, and they see this group of people outside, and they see this whole other world outside. And they're like, what, what? We didn't even know this was here. What's going on out here? And they call their friends over, and they're looking outside, and they see the people outside are looking up at the sky. But they, they can't tell what they're looking at because there's a roof on their warehouse. And so they, they look like they're, I don't know what they're looking at, and they get bored with it after a while and go back to life in the warehouse. And Peterson asked, what would happen if one day one of those kids cut a door in the warehouse and coaxed their friends out 
And they discovered the sky and the tree and the horizons and everything that's always been there, but they had no idea it was actually there. Uh, Peter says that's, that's what happens when we open the Bible. If I could add my own twist to that, God in the written word of the scriptures and in the incarnate word of Jesus Christ, he's cut a hole in the roof of the warehouse. Or it might be better to say he's blown the side off of the warehouse and enabled us to see a world that we had no idea was there. He's, he's enabled us to see this world that is, that is completely different and, and so much more amazing than this tiny, isolated warehouse world that we've been living in. Peterson writes, we enter the totally unfamiliar world of God, a world of creation and salvation stretching endlessly above and beyond us. Life in the warehouse never prepared us for anything like that. Typically, adults in the warehouse scoff at the tales the children bring back. After all, they are completely in control of the warehouse world in a way they could never be outside, and they want to keep it that way. God has spoken in Jesus Christ. He's blown the side off of the warehouse. He's opened the door. And so that we can see the world as it actually is that we've never seen before. And so we're, we're not trapped in this world of cynicism, nihilism, hedonism, where nothing matters and there is no purpose and all we can see is the four walls and the roof of the warehouse. He said there's a, there's a bigger world. There's this world, there's this created world. It's not an accidental world. It's a, it's a world created by God and it's a world of wonder and hope and joy. It's a world of salvation and redemption it's a world where broken things are actually made new. And we have access to that world because God has spoken. Because God has, has made himself known. Because God has made the invisible visible. Kind of like in, in any of the Avengers movies where Doctor Strange steps through one of those little holes. You're like, oh, where did he come from? All right, the, the invisible has suddenly become visible. And that changes everything. So is, is the warehouse all that there is? Is this universe of these four walls all that there is? No. Is there anyone out there? Yes. And Hebrews is saying, yes, he is there. And he's not silent. He has spoken. He has spoken in the person of Jesus Christ. And that changes everything. Well, secondly, in Jesus, God has made himself known. But he's made himself known as the king. Look at verse 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Uh, in Israel, the firstborn son had the rights of inheritance. Jesus is God's only son, and therefore he inherits all things from the father. Psalm 2, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The universe belongs to to this God-man. The universe belongs to Jesus Christ. One writer put it this way. His inheritance is the innumerable company of the redeemed. Like He's inherited us. We are part of his inheritance. And the universe renewed by virtue of his triumphant work of reconciliation. He's, he's inherited a redeemed people and a renewed universe that is being renewed and those people are being redeemed because of what he has come and what he has accomplished on the cross. 
Jesus is the king because all of this is his inheritance. All of this belongs to him. Secondly, Jesus is the king because in verse 2 it says, through whom also he created the world. Through Jesus, God created the world. Jesus is not on the, the end of those things, on the side of those things that were created. He was actually the one who was doing the creating. He is the creator and owner of all things. He is the king. Verse 3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. What keeps all this from flying apart? What, what holds our lives together? Who makes all this continue to function? Jesus does. Verse 4, he, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And the, the phrase at the right hand pictures Jesus seated in the position of supreme authority and highest honor. He's enthroned and he's ruling over all things because Jesus is the king. Now, what difference does that make? So, so what? This tells us that, that the universe is not just chaos. It's not just randomly happening. That there's actually someone who is in charge. There is a king. There is a ruler. Ours is not a meaningless existence. There is a purpose. There is a plan. This is not just a big mistake. But there is a God in whose image we are made sitting at the very center of all reality and ruling all things. Secondly, so what? This means I don't have to try to control everything. I I don't have to try to control everything. I can go to sleep at night because God doesn't. He's not distracted. He's not taking his hands off the wheel. He's not busy checking his text messages and, and running off the road. He is in active control of his creation. And if I know the one who is in active control of his creation is also someone who cares about me, I don't have to worry. I don't have to worry. Imagine all right, somebody said, all right, David Treese, you got to come up here, and we're going to have you make a, a six-foot putt. And if you make this putt, uh, then everybody gets to leave. If you miss this putt, then everybody dies. Like, like no pressure. All right? So are any of us, all right? Imagine someone told you that. And like, you're like, oh, my goodness. And, and, and then they said, I, I, we're just kidding. We've got Tiger Woods here, and we're going to let him make this putt. Now, what would you do? you go, oh. Like, you, you, you would exhale, right? Y'all, because, well, his short game is a little sketchy. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> good point. Um, you, but but you, would, you would exhale, right? Y'all, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can exhale because he is in control of all things. He is ruling over all things. He is your savior and he is the king. And he's got this. Now I know that's not magical. I know saying it doesn't magically make your worries disappear. But it is a safe runway for for us to land our airplane of worry on. That we can actually cast our cares upon Jesus. Because the one who cares about us is also the one who is the king. Thirdly. Uh, There is someone in charge. There is a king. And that means that there is a moral order to the universe. And that's a a very good thing. Because if no one is ultimately in charge, then every time someone makes a moral truth claim, you and I, or anyone ought to say, says who? 
Right? If no one is ultimately in charge, if there is no king, then, then every time a moral claim is made, you ought to say, says who? Oh, we all know that throwing your child in a ravine, as happened in North Carolina this week, is wrong. Well, says who? Who, who, who says? On whose authority? Well, well we all know that, that, that abortion is wrong. Well, well, says who? Well, we all know that abortion is okay. Well, well says who? What, what authority are you appealing to exactly? You need to, to take care of the environment. Well, why? It says who? You need to get off of my lawn. Well, well, well says who? Who says that? All right? It's wrong, we say, for Thanos to snap his fingers and, and wipe off half of humanity, right? Well, why is that wrong? It says who? Maybe he was right. Maybe it does make everything better if there weren't as many people around. See, the fact that Jesus is in charge mean there, means there is a says who. There is a moral order. There is a right and wrong. And that's a very, that's a very good thing. But, but, but here's the thing with that. If he's in charge, then that means that I'm called to give up my autonomy and to submit to his kingship. And that's, that's the rub, isn't it? Because what did Eugene Peterson say? The adults in the warehouse, the, the adults are in complete control of the warehouse world in a way they never could be outside, and they want to keep it that way. See, Jesus' kingship threatens my kingship. Right? But, but, if, but if I don't allow him to, a challenge, to challenge my authority, if I don't allow him to challenge my view of sexuality and the, the way I use money, if I don't allow him to cha- challenge everything about the way that I think and to correct the way that I think, then who's really the king in that scenario? Our heart wants to know, is there anybody in charge of all this? And the writer of Hebrews says, yes. His name is Jesus. Well, then third point in Jesus God has made himself known so yes there is someone there in Jesus God has made himself known as the king so yes there is someone in charge and then finally in Jesus God has made himself known as the king who has come to save us we want to know if there's someone there we want to know if there's someone in charge and then we want to know is there any way to fix this Is there any way to fix this? Is there anyone who's going to step up and do something about this? I had a friend who said for about the first 25 years of his life, he kind of felt life was a a comedy. It was was just fun and laughs. And then he hit a certain age and kind of the reality of life began crashing in on him. And he said, life seems more like a tragedy. And you get that if you pay attention to the news. I, I recently had to take... WYFF out of my Facebook feed because like they just list every tragedy that happens like it's just continually in my feed like I don't need to be reminding of this every time I'm I'm looking for a little bit of an escape here actually I I don't need to be reminded constantly of the the child abuse and the babies thrown into ravines and the school shootings and all of this there's this death and sickness all around me and we ask is is there any way to fix this is there any way to fix this and we think well if we take all the guns away, that'll fix things. And the other side, no, if we give everybody guns, that's going to fix things. 
If, if our party gets into power and we make laws that are in accord with how we think, that'll fix things. If we can take over and make this more like Jesus land, then that will fix things. Oh, wait, we'll fix it through education. But then our education system largely ignores the world outside of the warehouse. It's actually illegal to talk about the world outside of the warehouse in many cases. Well, we'll eliminate poverty. We'll, we'll throw more money at the problem. And then we just kind of go, well, we'll just do the best we can. And at least I can fix my own life and make it better. So I'll find a soulmate. Someone who completes me, someone who understands me and everything will be okay. I'll perform better. I'll get in better shape. I'll eat better. I'll track everything. I'll track how many calories I eat and how many steps I take and how many times I go to the gym. And I can track how well I'm sleeping and I can get better at that. We'll work harder and we'll make this better. And if you're not in this with me, then I'll get outraged at you. And if I get outraged enough, then you'll agree with me, and that'll make things better. How's that working out for y'all? You know, are, you, are you worn out yet? Are you exhausted by all of that? Are you cynical? Are you guilt-ridden? Do you feel shame because you're not fixing everything and fix everything in our own lives what if the real problem was deeper than all that what if the real problem was in my heart in your heart in the heart of your neighbor what if there was this self-centeredness rooted in my heart what if there is this refusal to submit to any authority much less god's authority rooted in my heart what if the problem really is what the bible calls sin and what if Jesus on the cross actually came to do something about that? Verse 3, kind of midway through, it says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After making purification for sin, after doing something about sin, he sat down because his work of doing something about sin was finished. And what if he did that for us? And what if he did that for us because he loves us? And what if there is someone out there who sees me as I am and yet loves me? And what if this work of Jesus means I could know the king and I could know the king's love? And I can know without a doubt that my sin and my guilt and my shame have actually been, absolutely been removed. And I can know that I'm enough. And what if I can know the hope of the resurrection and begin to shed my worry and my selfishness and actually begin to love God and love the people around me and become a, a person of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness, and self-control. What if all that was possible? What if God had spoken and said something along those lines? Hebrews is saying that God has spoken, and that through his suffering and crucified son, he's entered into our sin and entered into our suffering in order to do away with it 
in the only way possible. Because there is only one way. And it's at the cross of Jesus Christ. See, I don't think you're going to find a better story than that. I know you're not going to find a better story than that. Because you're not going to find a better Savior than that. Well, hope, young hope who got married to the man twice her age. Hope was actually converted at age 22 through a tract that came in the mail about Christianity. And she was converted, and eventually her much older husband was also converted, and her son is now minister of the gospel. Her suffering was transformed. Generations of suffering was transformed by this better story of Jesus. And yours can be too. Because God has spoken. Let me pray. Father, I pray that in the, in the midst of all those hard parts of our life, that you would soften those parts. That you would help us to see that you have entered into our sin and suffering in order to do away with it. Would you help us to believe that this is a better story, to understand this story, to believe this story, and to entrust ourselves in faith and repentance to the Jesus of this story. Uh, we can't do that unless you work. So, Father, we, we ask that you would, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.